Well, as many of you know, we just wrapped up our series that we called We Believe. We took six weeks to walk through the various clauses of the Apostles' Creed and bits and pieces of the next creed, the Nicene Creed, to emphasize and talk about the very core fundamentals of what the church has believed to be true for 2,000 years. And so we thought it would be good for us as we move from one year into the next to move from we believe into a series that we're just simply calling we are. The things that we believe are intended as Christians to become the things that we do and then the things that we become ourselves as we are. It's a universal truth of human nature that what you believe will inevitably come out in your behavior. What you believe most about education and family and kids and finances and the use of your time and your marriage and relation, on and on, what you believe most about those things will inevitably come out in our behavior. And the more they come out in our behavior, the more our characters are formed, the more our habits are formed. And so we go from what we believe to what we do to who we become. So if we believe these kinds of things that we've talked about, about God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, if we really believe these kinds of things about Christ and God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit, what kinds of consequences will it have? Our most strongly held beliefs will always come out in our behavior. So what does it mean for us to believe these things about God? So friends, we realize as followers of Jesus Christ that with access to God and with access to these kinds of truths about who he is and how he's created us and everything around us, we have access to his way of life. We have access to a brand new way of life. And in fact, it's a new way of life together. So as we talk about what we are, we're gonna talk specifically about what we are as the church of Jesus Christ. So we are, we are the church is going to be our emphasis here for a couple of weeks. What does this life look like? This life as the church of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ, what the creeds call the holy Catholic apostolic church. It's something that is holy, not because you and I are holy, but because we belong to a holy God. It's Catholic in the sense that it's universal, through space and through time, it is God's one church and it's apostolic because you and I are holding to the things that have been taught to us in God's word. For 2,000 years, the church has held to these things. So here are the things that we're gonna talk about this morning about what we are as the church of Jesus Christ. First and foremost, and this is our big idea this morning, and it is this, God builds his church. This thing And I'm not talking about the building. Of course the building is God's to use, but I'm talking about what the building holds, what the building represents, the gathered people of God. This belongs to God. We belong to God. And it is on the confession that Jesus is the Christ we're going to discover, that God is going to build this little outpost of his kingdom, that God will build his church. God builds it, guys. We don't. We work in it and we strive for it, and we pray for it, and we work for it, but God builds the church. Then we're gonna talk about the fact that Jesus, in our passage of Scripture, we're gonna read that Jesus is the head of his church. Ultimately, what we do together 
as the, church, as the church of Jesus Christ, it isn't about us in the way that we might be a consumer of the church, the way that a restaurant is designed to serve its customers and, and draw you back and entice you back. It isn't about us in that kind of way. It's about the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ, about telling people about Jesus and making disciples. Jesus is the head of his church. We're going to discover something else that I think is an interesting thought, but one that was incredibly important to a a very influential young pastor in the 20th century. We're going to learn that God uses the church to help fix what the fall broke. In our sin, we become separated from each other, and we become separated from God. And Christ uses the church to help bring those things back together under the power of the Holy Spirit. Sin disorders our lives. And the church under Christ helps to reorder our lives back toward God. And then we're going to talk about this. This is the, our final thought this morning, and it's important. The church exists to glorify God. Followers of Jesus Christ give glory back to Him everywhere they are. Let's read from the book of Colossians chapter 1. I'm going to start reading in verse 15. This passage of Scripture is all about Jesus, but right in the middle of this passage, we learn something important about Jesus and His church. So Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, the passage goes like this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. What an incredible passage of Scripture about Jesus Christ. Many scholars believe that this passage that we just read is, is what you might call a hymn of the early church. It was something that was structured in such a way that was easy for them to remember and repeat, and they would use it as they would teach each other, brand new Christians, about who Jesus was, as they would teach their children about who Jesus was. They would use this to talk about the preeminence, the power, and the place of Jesus Christ inside of this world. And right in the very middle of it, the relationship that Jesus has with his body, that is the church, the gathered people of God. So as we start to talk about the fact that God builds his church and what it is that's important about who we are as the church, I think like with Paul here and with this passage of scripture, it's important that we begin with who Jesus is, with his supremacy, with the magnificent power and grace and work of Jesus Christ. This passage tells us things like this. He is the image of God in flesh. 
The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus Christ. And this is actually something that we celebrated this last month as we walked through Advent and then on Christmas Day. We're reminded over and over again that Christians don't worship a creature. Christians don't worship a human being who just happened to be very much like God and had a lot of wonderful things to say. It's not who we worship. When we worship Jesus Christ, we're worshiping God in flesh, the one in whom the fullness of God dwelt. So when Jesus walked and talked amongst his disciples, amongst his creations, he was here in flesh as God himself. What an incredible thing for God to do for us. And it isn't just that. This passage actually spends quite a bit of time talking about Jesus as the creator. He is the power for the act of all creation, right? This passage of Scripture says. And more than that, it says that Jesus Christ is the goal of all creation. All things were created through him and for him. All of history and creation, all of human history is making its way back to its creator, Jesus Christ. Isn't that incredible? So he's the image of God in flesh. He's the creator of all things. He's the goal of all creation. And then it even says that all things in creation are held together by the power of Jesus Christ. From everything that spins inside of galaxies to everything that works in our microbiology, this happens because of the creative power and wisdom of Jesus Christ. And guys, when we begin to come to terms with who he is, And what all of that means, we're drawn up in worship, we're drawn up in awe, and some of it feels even beyond our capacity to fully make sense of. But here's the point of that. When we're becoming aware of who Jesus truly is, it puts us in the right place under Jesus Christ. If he is that kind of power and that kind of authority... There's nothing within me that can challenge that authority and power. There's nothing within us, however many of us there are, who can challenge that kind of power and authority. So we can't challenge it, but here's something that's beautiful about that. We belong to it. He is the head of his body, the church. And what Christ does through his church, we're given an opportunity to take part in. And we're going to read some of that in Scripture as we move along this morning. So we belong to him and we live and work under him. But he is the power of the church itself. So his position in the universe, so to speak, is crucial to his relationship with his people So what Paul tells us, we remind ourselves of this fact that Jesus is the head of the church. We are intended to follow him, not the other way around, okay? That's important because in our brokenness and sin and inattention to our walk with Christ, we typically want it to go the other way. (laughs) We're supposed to follow him. He does not follow us. We hold to and we learn and we live out the truths of Jesus Christ. And sometimes, maybe often, we do that in spite of the cultural pressures that are around the church. This fact that Jesus is the head of the church and we follow him, this fact is critical to the witness of the church. 
It's critical for the witness of the church to a congregation, to the local body of believers itself, and it's critical for the witness of the church to the rest of the world as well. The church cannot bear witness to the culture around it if it tells the culture everything the culture already wants to hear. Does that make sense? We bear witness as people who belong to Jesus Christ. So we talk about his truth and his way and his love and his grace and his glory and his power. That's critical to our witness amongst each other and to the rest of this world. So guys, if a church or if a denomination or an individual Christian decides to accept the ways of the world instead of following and accepting the ways of Jesus Christ, what we are in fact saying is, world, you are right about this and the creator of the universe just happened to be wrong about this, right? If we make that decision, we're telling the world Jesus was wrong and you're right. There's a passage of scripture coming out of 2 Timothy chapter 4. An old, wizened, and literally beat up apostle Paul is in prison and he's writing to a young, enthusiastic pastor by the name of Timothy, probably in the city of Ephesus. Some of the final pieces of advice that Paul gives out, and he says this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. They just won't put up with it. So it's not a modern phenomenon. This has been going on for a long time. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into meds. Now, oftentimes, if um, we read this passage of Scripture, think through this passage of Scripture, the images that it conjures of false teachers, we think of, well, yeah, I, I've, I've quit listening to or I refuse to listen to that teacher uh, who's on TV or that individual on the radio or if this guy writes another book, I'm just not going to read this guy's books because this individual is just a false teacher. We think in those kinds of terms, and we should because there are plenty of those people out there. But everything we learn from is a teacher. The media that we imbibe is a teacher. The way that we work through social media is a teacher. Everything that we do teaches us, forms us. And so the Apostle Paul says more than just there are false teachers out there. He says things are going to happen inside of the human heart where individuals will no longer endure, want to put up with, want to put themselves in front of the true teaching of Jesus Christ and his word, but instead, and I love the way he talks about it, they will accumulate for themselves. They will surround themselves with false teachers, but they're the teachers they want to hear. It's going to scratch the itch that I have in my ear, right? So we're going to gather false teachers around us. And so we have to come back to this fact that Jesus is the head of the church and we follow him and we listen to him. So guys, sometimes it just is the case that some individual churches, sometimes even entire denominations have decided to follow culture's pressures instead of Jesus Christ and as such their witness is tarnished and as such their witness is reduced because they've decided that the culture is right in certain ways and Jesus Christ is wrong in those certain kinds of ways. So the church has to be very careful about those kinds of things. And I hope you don't mind if I get a little over-personal here this morning because I'm going to whether you mind it or not, right? 
you preface a sentence with that and you know it's coming anyway, right? If you shake your head, no, I'm going to do it anyway. I watch this happen as a pastor. I've been doing this for a while now. Every now and then someone who I would call a committed, serious, solid Christian, someone who loves their prayer life, someone who loves the word, someone who loves their brothers and sisters in Christ, someone who loves even just showing up to church and singing with each other, someone who is a committed Christian, has a group of nominal Christians inside of their lives, whoever those people are, and they will actually come and tell me, I'm going to change my habits and I'm going to follow the nominal Christians in my life to try to bear witness to them and bring Bring them back into church. Now, let me give you just one of two guesses. Which happens? Do the nominal Christians become like the committed Christian, or does the committed Christian suddenly become like the nominal Christian? In my experience, it is 100% of the time the committed Christian becomes the nominal Christian. We have to learn how to bear witness that Jesus is the head of the church and of his people. And what it means to hold to these things that we love about Jesus. And sometimes bearing witness is hard, but we have to bear witness to these things as committed followers of Jesus Christ because he is the head of the church. And then he tells us in this passage, Paul does, and in other passages as well, that God uses the church to reconcile people to himself through the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guys, the message and the power of the church is completely wrapped up in the message and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we as people are bearing witness to speaking and living the good news of Jesus, that's where the power and the work of the church lies. If we let go of those things, we suddenly lose, again, the power for our witness inside of this world. So it turns out that God builds his church in order to bear witness to Jesus. Isn't that cool? A passage of scripture from 2 Corinthians as Paul is writing to that church. He says this, and it ties into what he said in, in Colossians chapter 1, 2 Corinthians 5. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. All of that us language All of that we language. Yes, Paul is talking about himself and his missionary team, but he's also talking to the Corinthian church. He's also talking to the body of Christ. Look, this is what Christ has done for us, and this is the ministry he's given us, that we now become ambassadors of this message of reconciliation. So here is, very straightforwardly, one of the things we do because of what we believe We bear witness to Jesus Christ and to the truths about him. And more and more, and and I I think most Christians feel this, whether they can put their finger on it or not, I think most followers of Jesus Christ just feel the air changing around us in our culture. More and more, 
It is the case, I think, that just simply holding to the fundamentals of the faith and holding them to be objectively true, true for everybody, just makes us stick out. It just makes us different, the things that we believe that are given to us in God's Word. So if my neighbors no longer believe in objective truth, I do because I follow Jesus Christ. If my neighbors no longer believe God is a moral authority in our lives, I do. If my neighbors no longer believe in the value of Scripture or of church, I do. If my neighbors no longer believe in any kind of limits on human sexuality or behavior, I do. And on and on the story goes. So then, becoming the church of Jesus Christ, following Him as our head, bearing the ministry of reconciliation, being the church of Jesus Christ just requires thoughtful, loving, wise, enduring witness to the world around us. And as we go through the next couple of weeks, we'll get to talk, to the, talk about that in a little bit more depth. But it reminds us again of this big idea that God is at work building His church. I want to continue to read in Colossians chapter 1 a, a couple of more verses about what Paul has to say about all this. And he turns it from his focus on who Jesus is and his relationship to us as the church. And now he turns his attention to you and me, and he talks about himself and us as his church. In verse 21, And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. I'm going to read one more verse, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. He says, in you... All of us, we were once alienated from God, and now because of Christ in his work, we are being reconciled back to God. The fall, our fall into sin, broke the things that God intended to be at work within us. So our fall into sin tarnishes the way God built us morally. It tarnished the way God built us intellectually. It tarnished the way God built us relationally. And on and on that story goes. Part of the beauty and uh, wonder of the story of creation is to realize things like this, that God actually created us to live in intimate relationship with Him and with each other as well. But as the story goes, as Adam and Eve transgress, as they cross the barrier, as they rebel against God, both of those things were broken. The relationship that God intended that we have with each other and the relationship that He intended that we have with Him. If you go back and you read that portion of the story, Adam and Eve eat of the forbidden tree, and essentially two things happen just in the next two or three verses. Their eyes are open to a certain thing about each other, and they realize we're naked. So they sew clothes for themselves, and 
what had been an innocent relationship between the two of them is beginning to separate because of their sin and disobedience. And then what is, for my money, one of the saddest, most profoundly sad moments in all of Scripture is that God shows up in the garden and it says that they hid themselves from him. They had been walking with him and talking with him face to face, so to speak. But because of that sin, they're now ashamed, and so they hide from the presence of God. See, this is what our sin does. It breaks what God intends between us, and it breaks what God intended between us and him as well. So Paul uses this language of alienation and reconciliation. He says, what has been alienated because of our sin is being reconciled. It's being rebuilt through the work of Jesus Christ and through the work of His church that is honest to Jesus Christ. So the work of the church is a critical thing, biblically, theologically, socially, individually, and so on and so forth. I don't know why this image came into my head as I was thinking this through, but more and more, American Christians treat the church like the appendix of their habits. When I was in fifth grade, my appendix nearly broke, nearly burst in. I went into surgery, I had my appendix removed, and because I was a a fifth grade boy, um, I asked for it. So for two or three weeks, I had this medical vial sitting next to my bed. Just thought it was the craziest thing, right? This is what boys do. I had my appendix removed, and as far as I know, I've suffered no serious ill consequences from having my appendix removed. And here's how American Christians are starting to think more and more all the time. Well, inside of the course of my weekly habits and my monthly habits, I've got a bunch of things that are critical and important, and I'm going to pour my time and money and effort into that. Church is sort of inside of that mix somewhere, but it's the habit that I can get rid of and suffer no ill effects. I think that if I get rid of this one, I can just kind of keep moving on like nothing ever happened. When in fact, the way Scripture talks about the body of Christ, it's intended to be something much more like the nervous system or the circulatory system of our habits, the things that bring life to everything else that we do, the work of Jesus Christ. So you see what sin breaks. God is using the church under Christ to fix. The church actually pulls people back together under Christ. And you can read even more of that story as Paul writes to the Ephesians. In Ephesians chapters 2, 3, and 4, he's very explicit about how the church brings people back together under Christ. You see, the church, the faithful church, preaches forgiveness of sins. And so then the individual sinner finds grace inside of the message of the church. And then we come together. We're literally physically together because of Jesus Christ, putting people together who would otherwise be divided by the structures of this world. And guys, this is something I want to focus on over the next two or three weeks. Our, Our culture has found these brand new and really effective ways to create new forms of isolation in our lives, new forms of deep and profound division inside of our lives and our families and our culture, hyper-individualism and hardcore consumerism even when it comes to our faith, and then even the breakdown 
of the two fundamental communities that God has given us, the family and the people of God. Those are the first two communities that God gave us, the family and the people of God. And of course, there are things inside of this culture that just put these stressor pressures on those things and just keep tearing them apart. So we have to be careful about these things. As I thought of this, I was reminded of the young pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Germany, he had, he had gone through his education, he had completed his degree just as the Nazi regime was coming into power in Germany. And as he was starting his pastorate and his work in the academy and so forth, he's an outspoken critic of the Nazi regime. And as he does so, he's going to get in trouble. His friends managed to actually move him out to New York, New York City for a little while to study. And while he's there, he's pricked in his conscience and he decides, I have to go back home and be amongst my people in the belly of the beast and be a faithful witness to Jesus Christ there. Well, it didn't take very long for a lot of the church in Germany to acquiesce to the pressures of the Nazi, uh, the Nazi party. They would begin to hang and fly Nazi flags inside of their churches and preach only things that were approved by the Nazi regime. Well, Bonhoeffer and others broke away from that. They created what they called the Confessing Church and eventually had to go underground. So Bonhoeffer and a few others for a while actually ran an underground seminary, a secret seminary out in the middle of the woods. And while they are dealing with this separation, this attempt to remain faithful as the confessing church while everything around them is just literally blowing up around them, he writes this little book called Life Together about how important and valuable it is to be with brothers and sisters of Christ, especially inside of complicated and difficult times. Here's part of what he writes in Life Together, and this is, this is actually a picture of Bonhoeffer and some of those seminary students. He says, as Christianity means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ, no Christian community is more or less than this. Whether it be a brief, single encounter or the daily fellowship of years, Christian community is only this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. We belong together. and We belong together through and in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. So when God builds his church, he's building an outpost of the kingdom of God here on earth at this time in this culture. So when we act like the church, we become his ministers of reconciliation to the rest of the world. And so then in all of this, as the church is faithful to Christ, God is glorified. The only time in the Gospels that Jesus talks about this, the church is this powerful moment, this conversation that he has with his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. I want to read verses 17 and 19. Jesus and his disciples are talking, but he and Peter are having a conversation. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Jesus had just had this conversation. He asked the disciples, now, who does everybody else say I am? And they had all kinds of answers for that. Then he turns it on them, and he says, well, okay, that's great. Who do you 
say that I am. And in this moment of literal divine inspiration, Peter says, you're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, you're right. And it's upon this rock that I will build my church. Upon the fact of who Jesus is, the Messiah, everything we've been reading about Him in Colossians, everything we talked about Him through Advent and Christmas, the fact of who He is, upon that I will build my church. And I love this nuance. With the group of people who confess that to be true, I will build my church. Peter confessed, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So as the church moves forward and confesses that Jesus is Lord, their God is building his church. So the church just does not exist apart from who Jesus truly is, God himself with us. The Son of God come to save us and bring us back to himself. And so everywhere the children of God go, as as Bonhoeffer put it, if it's even just in a momentary encounter or if it's in the blessed community that lasts for years, we are together in Jesus Christ as his church. In Acts chapter 8, we have an early picture of how the church grows. And it grew through persecution. And it grew through the individual members of the congregation. In Acts 8, it says this, But Saul, this man who would become the Apostle Paul later, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered kept themselves quiet so that they could avoid prison time. It's not what that says. And those who were scattered by persecution, everywhere they went, they preached the word. God's building his church. So when Jesus builds his church, it becomes the kind of thing that will not be overcome by the work of the enemy, no matter what the work of the enemy is. The church of Jesus Christ founded upon him, guys, it will not disappear, it will not go away, it will not fail in God's work because it is God's church. That passage in Matthew 16, the gates of hell, That's a defensive image. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. It means the church is marching onward and the power of hell is pushed back. And this simply cannot be done under any of our power. My power, yours, whatever we would call power in earthly terms, we can't do that. God is building his church through his power, through his son Jesus Christ, and through the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit among us. Guys, as we work through this kind of topic over the next few weeks, I want you guys to pray something specific with me. As God lays it upon your heart, as you think about it, you might even want to make a note of it from time to time, but I want to pray for the renewal of the church. Renewal biblically is just where God soaks an organization in his presence and power. Again, not so that we can be even more clever, so that we can do more things, but so that this church would be renewed. This church locally, this one literally, and then the church of Jesus Christ in this city and just the church of Jesus Christ would be renewed, would be soaked with the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. This is how I want to walk into the next year. This is how I want to prepare for what happens next, is in the renewal 
the soaking presence of Jesus inside of his church. Will you pray that with me over the next few weeks? Let's pray.